Welcome to Tanakh Daily, a Congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. Today, we are exploring the jam-packed fourth parak of Malachim Bet. Last parak, we dealt with the very big-picture narrative developments, war involving the Northern Kingdom, the Southern Kingdom, Edo, Moab. In the fourth parak, the text zeroes in on a series of stories involving Elisha. They don't have, or at least don't appear to have, any obvious national significance, but they really do tell us quite a bit about who Elisha is. These stories are, uh, are ones in which Elisha proves to be quite similar uh, to Eliyahu Hanavi, his, his teacher and his, his mentor and his predecessor, of course. Uh, they're both these uh, incredible miracle workers. And in many ways, Eliyahu is really floating in the background of this perek, which is to say that we're going to see both interesting continuity between Elisha and Eliyahu and, of course, interesting contrast as well. The parak opens with a woman approaching Elisha, uh, who is, uh, this woman is in distress. Her husband uh, was, uh, was part of this prophetic class, one of the B'nai Hanavim, and he had died. And he had left her strapped with tremendous debt. And the lender was being demanding, cruel even, and uh, was demanding payment. And if she could not pay, uh, then she would have to give her, uh, her child to him as a slave, as a form of of payment, and the woman didn't know what to do. And so she comes to Elisha, who springs into action, and he asks her, what do you have in the house? She says, I have a bit of oil. He tells her, I want you to go to all of your neighbors and borrow as many empty vessels, jugs as you can find, as many as they will give you. And then she and her son collected all of them up, and he instructed them to pour the oil from their jug into these other jugs. And of course, Oil kept flowing and flowing and flowing, and so long as they had an empty jug to fill, as so long as there was a kibble, something they could accept uh, the the oil, it continued to proliferate and grow, obviously miraculously. And in so doing, they quote unquote produced a tremendous amount of oil. And then Alicia said, "Go and sell that oil," and with that, she was able to sell to to pay off her debt. And everyone goes home happy. That's the first episode that we encounter. In the parak, pausing here, it's striking how similar this is to a situation that we encountered in Eliyahu's career. You'll recall that he went to this widow of Tsarfat. Um, she was also a mother, very much concerned about herself and the welfare of her child. They were destitute. It was during a time of terrible poverty and, well, really famine, and uh, they were down to their last bit of flour. Eliyahu miraculously made that flour proliferate, and from that. Uh, flower from that miracle, they were able to survive the, the mother, her son, together with Eliyahu during the years of this devastating famine. So in obvious ways, this is a repeat of that episode, both of them causing some sort of food source to proliferate. But in interesting ways, it's, it's very different, and the differences are telling. To start with, Eliyahu approached, you'll re- recall from a few prakim ago, Eliyahu is the one who approaches this woman, uh, who is in distress, and he does so because Hashem told Elio that he needs to rely on her for food. And because she didn't have any food, Elio had to do this miracle to ensure that her and her child would have food and that he himself would have food. Not so with Elisha. In this situation, the woman sought him out for help because obviously he was seen as, uh, as a kind of a resource for the community, someone to whom you could turn when you were in crisis. He had that reputation. He was the person you went to. So we see that uh, 
that that Elisha was accessible to the people. Elisha was someone who the people came to in, in a time of need. That wasn't the case, or it's not it's not obvious to us that that was the case with regard to Eliyahu. Eliyahu was not uh, accessible in that way. Eliyahu was on, always in the margins. He was uh, uh, he was alone. He was in the wilderness. Uh, a very very different um, a very different persona. We then move on to the second anecdote. Elisha travels, we're told, from place to place, and he uh, he goes through a place called Shunem, and there is a great, a very distinguished woman there. There, We don't know her name, so we will call her Isha Shunamit, the, the Shunamite woman, and she took to providing food for Elisha. Whenever he would pass through, she would provide for him, and she even, together with her husband, uh, but at her suggestion, built a special room for Elisha to sleep in. They were going to provide him with lodging, obviously an act of great kavod to Elisha. I'll just note as an aside, even this, this image of Elisha in a room you know, with a bed and whatever, the trappings of, of, of domestic life, this very domestic view of, uh, of Elisha, we never really get that of Eliyahu. Eliyahu is always kind of popping up on a mountain, popping up in a vineyard, popping up all over the place. Uh, but we don't have this, this kind of, you know, this image of Eliyahu in a home, um, at least not, not regularly. So uh, we ha- there we have Elisha. He's, he's, he has, he's built up this relationship with this woman and, and her family. And he feels a tremendous debt of gratitude. And he asks her, what can I do for you? Do I need to put in a good word with the king or with some sort of officer or perhaps the, a heavenly officer? What, what can I do for you? And she responds with great Tremendous words of uh, humility and and uh, satisfaction with her lot. She says, "Besoch ami ani yoshevet." I dwell among my people, which is to say, I have all that I need. It can be interpreted a few different ways, but it's obviously a display of piety. But uh, Gechazi, who is the go-between uh, between Elisha and this woman, he's the messenger. He notes to Elisha that this woman is childless. And, um, and, and he suggests that a, a reward may be to provide her, uh, to bless her with a child, to somehow enact um, that miracle. And Alicia then does indeed send this message to the woman saying that in a year's time, um, well, he, he tells her that in a year's time, uh, she will have a child. She's in disbelief. Um, uh, not not in any sort of inappropriate way, but she's she she can't imagine that her lot would change in this way. And indeed, she is blessed a year later with a child. But after some time, the child is stricken by some terrible head pain, and he dies. And the woman then goes to Elisha, uh, who is now on Harha Carmel, and she throws herself at his feet, and she has really biting and pain-filled words for him. She says, Hasha alti bain did, I, did I ask for a child for my master? Meaning, why would you give me this blessing? I didn't ask for the child, and now you've given me the child only to then absolutely crush me, to break my heart. It's an accusatory, uh, but of course very understandable, um, uh, kind of a, 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 an attack at Alicia, right? She's, she's understandably, again, I don't think in an inappropriate way, but she's, she's devastated and she's asking, you know, why would you give me this blessing just to, to then break my heart? And then we learn that Alicia didn't know that this had happened to the child. Hashem had somehow hidden this from Alicia. Alicia initially sends Gechazi to perform a miracle, to use Alicia's staff to put it on the child, to revive him. Doesn't work. So then Alicia goes himself. He prostrates himself over the child. He puts his face to his face and uh, davens to Hashem and the boy is revived. And that's the end of that second episode in this parak.
And the story leaves us with so many questions. It's a well-known story, but it's one with a very difficult message to decipher. Obviously, the story uh, is parallel to Eliyahu's experience, reviving the son of this woman of Tsarfat right after they, after he makes the food proliferate. He's there, he's with them for some time, and then eventually this child uh, dies, and Eliyahu revives the child. Same thing here. Elisha uses a very similar procedure also in terms of prostrating himself over the child, etc., it's all uh, obviously parallel to that which Eliyahu does. Um, it's very hard, though, to understand the story in and of itself. Why did the child die? Did someone act in, improperly? Um, Rabbi Alex Israel, in his book, I'll, I'll kind of send you there to look at, at a number of approaches that he presents there, interesting approaches, varied approaches, uh, some of which might uh, even you might find even uh, almost difficult to bear. Um, the ones that put some of the blame or really put the blame on the, the mother, on Isha Hashunamit. Um, but most approaches, and I think the, the, the most resonant ones are the ones that view this as some sort of a critique of Elisha, perhaps going too far in promising this woman a child and doing so uh, without a kind of divine sanction. Now, obviously, if it was totally outside of what was possible, Hashem didn't need to give the child to the woman in the first place, right, Hashem? There's obviously a kind of divine sanction, if, if, if only post facto, in that Hashem ultimately delivers this woman, this child, miraculously, and of course, right on cue. Uh, so it, it's kind of compl- complicated to even kind of tie this up in a, a, a neat bow, but, um, but perhaps this is meant to be a, a kind of an overreach by Elisha, and this was meant to be a learning experience for him to see uh, how he needed to change and evolve as, as a prophet. I, again, as I said, I can't tie this up in a neat bow, but I will leave it for you to consider, to think about. Uh, but, uh, but for our 10-minute uh, restriction or thereabout, I definitely need to kind of leave it at that. The parak then continues with yet another story. We're told that Elisha is with the Bnei Hanavim, his students, uh, in Gilgal, and he uh, sends one of his followers to procure some, few, some food. We're told that it's a time of famine. He comes back with a certain type of gourd and feeds it to everyone, and they're just horrified. It's so bitter and sharp and, and disgusting, and, uh, and, and it's inedible. And then Elisha places some flour into the pot, and suddenly the food becomes edible. And then we learn yet a fourth miraculous story of... Um, uh, an individual, someone who is devout and, and obviously dedicated to Elisha and comes with bikurim, with fruits and, and grains for Elisha. And Elisha tells uh, one of his followers to, to, to dole it out to all of the men that were with him, which were you know, 100 men. It was a large gathering of men. But the food was obviously not enough to provide for all of them. Nonetheless, Elisha tells him, just give it out and Hashem will make sure that it is enough. In fact, Hashem will uh, allow there to be leftovers. And indeed, that was the case. There were enough there were even leftovers. So we have two stories uh, previously. You'll recall the water at Yericho, and we have the beginning of this parak with uh, making the oil proliferate. Um, now we have a third story, which is kind of parallel to the Yericho story, which was um, something that was inedible. Last time it was water, this time it was some sort of porridge, uh, which Alicia places something in and makes it edible. And then we have yet another story where we have food miraculously becoming multiplied, just like in the uh, situation of um, the Isha Hashunamit, 
uh, excuse me, not the Isha Hashunami, the first uh, story of our parak where we have the, the, food, the oil becoming multiplied. So to here we have yet again another story, this time with the Bikurim becoming uh, more numerous and being able to provide for all of the B'nai Hanavim. Each of these stories really deserves a closer study and a longer treatment. Um, but I think in general, if we want to kind of make a, a paint in broad brushstrokes, we can say that uh, we get an image of Elisha uh, through these miracles uh, that reflect an approach of kindness. And that, reflect, that, that kind of kindness reflects the cold mamadaka, the still soft voice that Hashem describes to Eliyahu as his preferred mode of operation, as opposed to Eliyahu, who was thunderous, and he was the wind, and he was an earthquake. Hashem told him that Eliyahu was, was too strong, and Hashem needed a, a Navi that would advocate for the people, that would be among the people. And, uh, and as a result, Eliyahu needed to appoint someone in his place. That person was Elisha. And I think we find that theme of Elisha being this softer voice, this person who's there to, to render food edible, person who's there to be present and a resource, very much uh, a man of the people. I think that that bears out uh, very clearly uh, throughout this parak. Uh, I'll note that Elisha does a lot of what he does behind closed doors. It's not this big uh, spectacle of Harha Carmel. It's he's revived someone that's behind closed doors. He made the oil uh, proliferate that was also behind closed doors. And so the, the, altogether, the parrot gives us a very different image of this Navi, even as he replicates in many ways the miracles of his predecessor and his teacher, Eliyahu Navi. That's it for today. Chazak, ve'ematz, and happy learning.